If you want to pull out your copy of the scripture and open up to a few different places, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2 primarily, and Micah chapter 5, 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, Genesis 49 and 12, Matthew 1, Romans 8. If you don't have a copy of the scripture tonight you, and you have downloaded the Bayou City app, there is an electronic Bible inside of it. So it's Christmas and we love to tell stories at Christmas, all kinds of different stories. Uh, we tell stories that are trivia about Christmas, like for example, you'll probably hear sometime in the next 20 days or so how we ended up celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Even a basic Google search will tell you that it's likely that Jesus was not actually born on December 25th. Um, Christian historians believe he was born sometime between early December to early spring. Um, but we ended up celebrating Christmas on December 25th because the Romans celebrated some winter solstice holidays around December 25th. And so sometime after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended, uh, those early Christians thought, well, if the rest of the empire is celebrating the light of the sun uh, at this time, we should celebrate the light of the son of God at this time. And by the early 300s, the emperor Constantine just declared December December 25th as the official day that we would celebrate Jesus' birth. You'll also probably hear the story about how we began to call it Christmas in the first place after Constantine instituted uh, December 25th as the official time to celebrate Jesus' birth. Uh, they would have Mass, and so they just jammed those two words together, uh, Christ, Mass, and that's how we get the word Christmas. You hear all kinds of stories like that. And then your family, like my family, has the stories you tell every Christmas. Like what's the best gift you've ever received or the gift that made you the happiest or the gift that uh, meant the most to you. Uh, the one that I think about was I was probably 10 or 11 years old. It was the first time that I got a stereo. Uh, it, it, this is a long time ago, but uh, it, it was amazing. And the bigger the speakers, the, the fancier the stereo was back then. Now, it's like the smaller it is, the, the more expensive it is. But back then, it, was, it had huge speakers, and then it had the three main things that every stereo needed at that time. It had a radio, it had cassette players, and this one, not just one cassette player, two cassette players. Uh, some of you are so young, you're like, I don't know what that that is. And then it had a CD player. At that time, uh, CDs, which don't even exist anymore, I'm pretty sure, uh, were for the elite Right, but somehow it had trickled down to normal people, and I got my first CD player, and I loved that stereo. I had it until I moved to Texas as a college student, and it is still in my dad's garage. Probably doesn't work very well, but I love that thing. I love to push seek over and over and over again. I would record things off the radio, which is something unheard of now. And uh, my two CDs that I received at the same time that I received that stereo were the Bodyguard soundtrack, mostly by Whitney Houston, and. And a U2 CD. And so my dream is that somebody would mash those two things together. So some of you DJs in here, get on that for me. Right? I loved that gift. I don't think I've ever received a gift that made me happier than receiving that stereo. And I probably find a way to tell that story every Christmas. And so you have those same stories that this Christmas season, you're going to get around with your friends. You're going to pull that anecdote out of your pocket. When you're around the tree with your families, you're going to remember times of yore uh, when you you were a kid, 
Right? We have the Christmas stories and then we have the Christmas story. And so for the next three weeks, we are essentially going to come together and tell the exact same story. Why would we tell this particular story over and over again in this holiday season? Look at the way that Luke opens up his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke says, this is why I'm writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because we have the eyewitness testimonies of those first disciples and apostles. They've taught these stories to us. But I, as a doctor, with surgical-like precision, want to give an orderly account. I want to start from the very beginning and work my way systematically through the life of Jesus up until his death and resurrection and ascension. So that Theophilus, the first person who received this letter, verse 4 you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke's purpose in writing this gospel was so that Theophilus would feel secure in the things that he believed. And that's why we are going to tell the stories of Jesus' birth for the next three weeks. So that we can feel secure in believing that Jesus, the Son of God, who preexisted eternally, was born as an infant in Bethlehem. Luke goes on to start his gospel, not with the birth of Jesus, but an angel appearing to Zechariah, a priest who was ministering in the temple. And the angel said to him, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. Zechariah says, impossible. We are past the age of having children. We've never been able to have children. It's impossible for us. To prove that the angel spoke with the authority of God, Zechariah was not allowed to speak, was mute, until his son John was born nine months later. We know John as John the Baptist, who God raised up as a forerunner, as a prophet who went before the ministry of Jesus, so that when Jesus began to preach about the kingdom of God, the soil was fertile in first century Israel. Also in Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to Mary, says to Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Mary says, not possible. I'm not married. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. You are going to give birth to God's son. Nine months later, the story we're so familiar with begins. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Look back at verse 11. For unto you is born this day. And then there are three phrases or words I want us to concentrate on tonight. In the city of David, number one, a savior, number two, who is Christ the Lord, number three. Now, when we hear the phrase city of David, we think that what Luke is doing is putting a pin in our Apple Maps. He's letting us know where exactly this is happening in the world so that our minds can orient around Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But he's doing so much more than giving us a location for Jesus' birth. He's actually reminding us of all the things that had been prophesied and promised before. See, 400 plus years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Micah prophesied in chapter 5, verse 2 of his book, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that a king would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Micah says a king is going to be born in Bethlehem. It shouldn't be born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem is small. It's not significant in any way. But nonetheless, this is what's going to happen. And it's been planned from ancient days. This isn't just something random that's going to happen. So Luke is signaling back to Micah. But Michael signals back to Genesis chapter 49 and chapter 12 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to King David. David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And that's what began to happen. David's son was king. His son's son was king. His son's son was king. But eventually Babylon came and became king over Israel. Then after Babylon, it was the Medes. And after the Medes, it was the Persians. After the Persians, it was the Greek. And Greeks, and after the Greeks, it was the Romans. In the first century, it was the Romans. So the truth is is that no descendant of any Israelite was on a throne in Jerusalem. No one was king, except for Caesar Augustus. But now, in Bethlehem, God's promise to David was coming to pass. God's promise to Judah in Genesis chapter 49. We won't turn there for time's sake. Jacob, the patriarch, is giving blessings to all 12 of his sons. And he gets to Judah and he says, Judah, from you are going to come the kings. No one else got that promise. But from you, your line is going to be royalty. It was a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 when God promised Abraham. Abraham, if you will leave your comfort zone, if you leave the comfort of your hometown, if you leave the comfort of your family, you'll follow me. I'm not telling you where we're going. If you'll follow me, I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And I'll make you the father of a great nation. And through you, I will bless the whole world. That's why Mary, in her prayer, references Abraham. Because she believed, Luke believes, that in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David, God is fulfilling his promise 
to Israel. The story of Christmas is the story of God fulfilling promises. But as I mentioned, there were 400 years between Jesus' birth and Micah's prophecy. So there were generation after generation after generation who did not see that fulfillment. Anytime we are waiting on one of God's promises to come true, we ask God the question of why is it taking so long? When we are waiting, we think that that is an experience just between us and God. But think about how the gospel of Luke opens. God is aligning stories so that his fulfillment will come to pass. There's Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. There's Mary and Joseph and Jesus. There's Caesar Augustus. There are the shepherds. Matthew tells us there are the magi who are beginning their trek. When God fulfills promises, it's not just between us and him. He is at work in everyone, everywhere. So when we are waiting on God, instead of asking, why is it taking so long? We need to be asking, God, what are you preparing? Who are you preparing? Because if it hasn't come to pass yet, it means you're still working. So we think about the greatest promise that God has made for us that still has not come to pass, Jesus' return. Jesus said that he would return, told his disciples that, so we're waiting. And we want Jesus to return. Everything that's wrong with this world will instantly not be wrong with it when Jesus returns. Everything that's wrong with you will not be wrong with you when Jesus comes back. It's something that we're waiting for, waiting for, waiting for, expecting, expecting. But instead of saying, God, why are you taking so long? We need to be asking God, what are you preparing? Who are you preparing? How are you aligning all of the stories? Because Christmas reminds us that God does fulfill his promises. In the city of David, a savior has been born. In Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is instructed to name the baby Jesus. It says in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means God saves. Name him this because he will literally fulfill his name. He will save people from their sins. When we think about salvation, we need to think about just how big it is in scope. Romans chapter 8 says that creation itself is looking forward to salvation. Romans 8 verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So when we read about forest fires and we read about hurricanes and earthquakes, all of these are signs that creation is in the middle of childbirth. It's, it's longing for something. It's, it's literally groaning for its own redemption. And this redemption is going to come through Christ. Creation is going to be saved. Creation is going to be redeemed. We instantly rush to how we personally are saved. 
But the salvation that God was bringing through Bethlehem is cosmic in scope. It starts with creation. God was saving Israel as well. Eight days after Jesus was born, the scripture tells us that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple because it was protocol for you to dedicate your firstborn son inside the temple. And there was a man there who the scripture says was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the salvation of Israel, that God would fulfill his promise. And the spirit of God gave him the intuition to recognize that Jesus was that salvation. And then Simeon says, I can go and die in peace now because I have seen the salvation of God. In Christ, Jesus was In Christ, God was saving Israel. The scripture tells us then that the Gentiles, us non-Jewish people, we are saved when we are grafted in to the family of God. And then it talks about us personally, how we receive this salvation when we make a decision to place our faith in the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. Even our culture knows it needs salvation. It doesn't use those words but it knows it needs something that it cannot provide for itself. Yesterday I was reading an article and God only knows how I started reading it, but it was about the black truffle. You guys know about truffles? Truffles are what, in my opinion, very wealthy people sprinkle onto their food. Supposedly supposedly it's delicious. I don't think I've ever personally eaten it. It's very big in Europe, but people who like truffles love truffles. And here's a couple of facts. It's fungus, number one. Number two, you can use a pig to help you find the black truffle, right? But in my opinion, if it's named fungus and you need a pig to help you find it, I don't, I don't think you should eat that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but apparently it's a, it's a delicacy, but there's a problem because of climate change and, the, and global warming, the black truffle is eventually going to be extinct. And so I'm reading this article that somebody took the time to write and then I wasted time to read. There was outrage because what are we going to do about the disappearance of the black truffle? (laughs) Apparently, we all need to give ourselves a truffle for Christmas. That's how delicious it is. This person was freaking out that the black truffle was going to disappear. But the end of the article was essentially like, this is happening and there's nothing we can do to change it. Uh, That's the message across all of our culture right now. This is happening, it's bad, and we are powerless to fix it. What they're saying, using our words, we need to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. But just like us, what our culture says is, I know I need salvation, but I want to define the terms in which I will receive it. I need help. But I want to decide how I get it, when I get it, and who I get it from. But Luke is telling us in just a few short words, the salvation that all of us needs was born in Bethlehem that day. The angels were heralds of that salvation. Then the shepherds carried on that mission of proclaiming the good news that Jesus has been born and he is the savior. And that's how Jesus ended his ministry by passing on that heralding work to us proclaiming in Jesus is the salvation that all of us need and all of us are looking for. 
If you've been out shopping the last few days, you know that the Salvation Army is out there ringing their bells already. It's a sign of the Christmas. What they're doing is heralding. They're letting us know by ringing their bells, be alert, be alert. Here's an opportunity for you. That's what it means to herald. It means to get people's attention and then share good news. One of the things that I get to do as a pastor is, is do weddings, and uh, I enjoy standing with the bride and groom, and most of everything about the wedding is super easy uh, for being a pastor. You got a little script there. It's the one time that I get to just read something, and it counts, right, because it feels sort of classy. You don't want to wing a wedding. You don't want to shoot from the hip on something that's going to be in a video. Anytime somebody's wearing a tuxedo, don't just wing it. That's just a general rule in life. And so I get to read the script. Most weddings are the same. There's just one moment that makes me the most nervous because I didn't know this really until I started doing weddings myself. But when everyone stands up to recognize the bride as she comes in, the mother of the bride is supposed to stand first. I I thought it was just a kind of a cue. We're all supposed to do this. But technically, it's the honor of the mother of the bride to be the first person to stand. And then we all watch her. And now we are able to follow her example and stand in honor of the bride. But the mother of the bride is always sitting on the front row, usually to my right. And they cannot see in the back when the doors open. And so it's the job of the minister to make eye contact with the mother of the bride so that she knows to stand. But that moment, is real complicated. First of all, I got a lot to do during the wedding. It's hard for me to remember everything that I'm supposed to do. I get distracted. And then also, she gets distracted too. It's a big moment, uh, lots of pressure. If I were her, I'd be thinking about how expensive this one moment is costing me doing the math in my head. And so sometimes she doesn't look at me and, you know, I can't say something to her because that's not classy and appropriate. And so I just, you know, kind of try to drill holes into her brain through eye contact to get her attention, right? But she stands up and then we all take her nonverbal cue and follow her example, And when most of us go to proclaim about Jesus' salvation, we act like the mother of the bride, We want to give nonverbal cues to everyone around us, right? Look at my life. Follow my example. Look at the way I'm living with integrity. Look at the choices that I'm making. Look at the things I'm doing. Look at the things that I'm not doing. And hopefully you will be able to discern why I'm doing those things because I believe in Jesus. And by watching me taking my nonverbal cues, ideally you would want to believe in Jesus too. But like the mother of the bride, I get distracted. I got a lot going on. I got a lot of decisions to make. I got a lot of things to think about. And sometimes I forget what my responsibility is. The truth is we're supposed to be more like those Salvation Army bell ringers. Alert, alert. This is important. This is something you need. Ring the bell. A savior was born in Bethlehem. The angels said it. The shepherds say it. We say it. Back to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Sometimes you hear Jesus called Messiah, and sometimes you hear him called Christ. It's the same word, they both mean the same thing anointed one sent by God. Messiah is Hebrew and Aramaic, and Christ is Greek. Christ the Lord. In Christ the Lord, in his birth, we see the paradox of majesty and humility. 
Luke starts chapter 2 by saying, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Think about how powerful you have to be to say one word, word and the whole world moves. Majesty. On the other end, you have the shepherds, who historians tell us were most likely the bottom rung of Israel's society, but they occupy the same space. Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem to be registered. It would be like if Congress decided that for the next census in America, you needed to go and register in the county that your grandfather was born. So think about the mass chaos as some of us would leave Houston to go someplace else. Other people would leave where they live to come to Houston. It would be this massive flip-flop, everybody moving around. That's what was happening in first century Israel. That's why when Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem, there's no room for them in the inn. It's because everybody is moving at this time to be registered, to be a part of the census. So they have to stay in a barn. Uh, history tells us it was a cave. It was wherever they were keeping animals. We know this because Mary laid him in a manger, which was a feeding trough. Humility. You would think a king would be born first in Jerusalem, but if not in Jerusalem, then at least the nicest house in Bethlehem. But no, he was born among the animals. And that's how he lived his life. This beautiful mix of majesty and humility, the same way he entered the world. When he was baptized, he was anointed by the Spirit of God in a way that John the Baptist could see. A voice from heaven thundered out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He moved in the power of God And he did great miracles. On the mountain he was transfigured. He put back on the glory that he had when he was the pre-existing eternal son of God. But he was also humble. Just as he was born in a manger, he later on said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He spent most of his ministry depending on the generosity of others. Come and stay with me. Come and be supported by the money that I've collected that we've collected on your behalf so you can have the food that you need and the supplies that you need. It was in humility that he let himself be arrested. In humility, he let himself be convicted. In humility, he let himself be tortured. In humility, he carried his cross. In humility, he stayed on the cross until he died. And in majesty, he was resurrected from the dead. And that's how he's called us to follow him. Our lives, like his life, should be a beautiful mix of majesty and humility. Majesty, you are in Christ a son or daughter of God with full rights. You are a co-heir with Christ, the scripture says. You are rich, maybe not yet, but one day you have eternal life. You have been filled with the spirit of God. So you are moving in this world with the power of God. You've been given a spiritual gift that when you use that gift, it goes beyond just something you're good at. It is a revelation, a manifestation of God's spirit. 
Jesus right now is preparing a place for you in his father's house. Your life is majestic and humble. Jesus says, if you want to be first, then you have to be last. If you want to save your life, then you need to lose your life. If you want to be the greatest, then you become the servant of all. Jesus says, if somebody hits you in the right cheek, offer him your left cheek too. Christmas, the Christmas story reminds us that, that Jesus is Christ the Lord, but he's a different kind of Lord. It's no wonder that most of the Jewish people missed him because they misunderstood him. They thought he would only be majestic. And majestic kings aren't born in mangers in Bethlehem. But our Lord was. There are lots of stories that you'll tell yourself this Christmas. But this is the only story that saves. This is the only story that will give you certainty of the things that you've been taught. So come back next week and we'll tell it to ourselves again. Let's pray.